Loneliness is one of the worst feelings in the world. There are a lot of reasons why one would feel lonely and abandoned, but sometimes in our loneliness, we will go to extreme measures just to look for a companion. There are those who would pay money so that people would listen to them. There are some, like in Japan, who will be willing to sit with stuffed animals just so they won't have to eat alone. And if you Google Moomin Cafe, uh, it is a cafe dedicated for people, sadly, who have no other friends to eat with. And there you will go to their cafe and they will put a stuffed animal known as a Moomin, uh, it's like a hippo-like character from an Ill Finnish illustrator, to sit with you to provide you company. You would think that no one would go to a cafe like this. And yet, uh, even today, there is a wait list to get in. It is sad that the pain of loneliness is so deep and affects us all at some point in our lives that we will look often anywhere for companionship. And sometimes that feeling of loneliness is not just about having someone physically next to you. It's often at a deeper emotional heart level, a feeling of abandonment, feeling of being alone. That's why you and I can feel very alone, even in a crowded room. Is it possible for you to feel lonely even in your family unit? Absolutely. You feel it when your family abandons you, when your spouse betrays you or breaks your trust when your family and friends break and betray your trust or when perhaps you're a child or a teenager and your dad and mom don't see things from your perspective they just don't get it you feel very alone at that moment or your siblings all gang up on you you're the only one with a different perspective on a matter. A longing for companionship and the deep hurts that come with loneliness often bring about messiness in life and cause family dysfunctions. How we deal with this emotional state will either get us into a lot of trouble or allow us to find great hope. We want to tackle this issue of loneliness this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Genesis. We are at Genesis chapter 28, verse 10. We are continuing our sermon series entitled Home as we look at the life of Jacob. As you turn to Genesis chapter 28, verse 10, if you remember, Jacob is forced to flee his home because his brother Esau is out to kill him. His parents tell him to run to safety to the home of his uncle Laban in Padam Aram. And this is where we pick up the story. To help you follow along, I'm going to suggest three things to remember when you are lonely. And then I will suggest one truth that will transform your life or should transform your life. Followed by three responses for how we are to live our lives when we remember that God is always with us. He is our companion forever. Let's begin our study in verse 10 and 11. 
Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went towards Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head. And he lay down in that place to sleep. Jacob is on the run. He doesn't know if Esau is chasing him or if he's just a few meters behind. Jacob is in unfamiliar territory. He's out of his natural comfort zone. He's out of his natural elements. Remember, he's a man who doesn't like the outdoors. He's very much an indoor kind of guy. He doesn't have a travel companion. And I would presume he would be very scared. He perhaps is questioning the decisions he has made and wondering if it is worth it all. Here he is now a fugitive, per se. Whatever the case, this is a picture of a man who was very much alone at this moment, exposed to the elements, no safety of home or of companion, not knowing if he's being chased closely by a, a skilled hunter of a brother who is trying to kill him. The Bible says it is at the end of the day, it is dark, there are no flashlights then, and so his journey ends, and he lays on the ground to sleep, taking one of the stones to prop up his head as a pillow. He must have been exhausted. Who uses a stone as a pillow? And as he lays on that ground to restless sleep, something happens. Look at verse 12. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and it reached, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Here, God gives Jacob a very special dream, a vision. He sees a ladder that goes all the way to heaven, and angels are going up and down, busily doing their work. This was to serve as a reminder to Jacob that there is a spiritual realm perhaps he wasn't aware of. A spiritual realm unseen to us in the physical realm that is very much active and alive. It was to remind him that there are angels all around and they work in the spiritual realm as commanded by God to assist people and to protect us. And if they are allowed by God to enter into the physical realm, then there is a chance, although probably very rare, that some of us may have interacted with angels unaware. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 talks about this. Let me just stop here and note, I don't believe that God chooses to speak to us through dreams today. He can, but probably doesn't, because now we have His revealed will in the scriptures. We don't have to interpret dreams to receive God's message and will because we have the Bible. Now, if we want to look to see what God's will is, then it's right here in the Bible. But in this dream vision that is given to Jacob, the scriptures were not yet written. And so God wanted to encourage him to remind him that he is to remember, number one, if you're taking notes, to remember the realities of the spiritual realm. To remember the realities of the spiritual realm. When we feel that we are alone, when we feel that we are by ourselves, we will naturally be scared. And yet sometimes we forget 
that there is a realm unseen to us where God is actively at work to help us and to protect us. All around us at this moment, there are angels. And there are probably a few demons spying on who came to service this morning. That's in the spiritual realm. But we are not to fear. That's why we pray. Our prayer is to ask God to help us. And perhaps, if it's His will, to use the angelic forces at His disposal to assist us. You will note that this is the first time that Jacob interacts with God. And so perhaps, most likely, he is unaware or has not been thinking that there is the spiritual realm where God is very much at work to protect him. In 2 Kings chapter 6, the Syrian army is going to attack a city in Israel. And that city is the prophet Elisha and his servant. His servant, Elisha's servant, is very afraid, wondering how this city can withstand the might of the Syrian army. But Elisha is sure. And Elisha prays that God would open up the eyes of his servant just for a moment to be able to see into the spiritual realm. And here's what happens in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And of course, his servant was encouraged. Remember the story of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse 55. As he was about to be stoned to death, the Lord gives Stephen the privilege to see into the spiritual realm, to see the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, also to encourage him as he would soon lose his life for the sake of Christ. You see, when God gives people the privilege of seeing into the spiritual realm as recorded in the Scripture, like for Jacob, it is often and most often to encourage them. Some of you may be wondering, well, then is it true that those who claim to have a third eye uh, to be able to see into the demonic spiritual realm, uh, how does that work? We're not going to tackle that uh, this morning, but if you're interested in subjects like that, then here's a plug for our Wednesday evening theology class where we talk about things like that. But when God gives men and women the privilege however rare it is, to be able to see in the spiritual realm, it is not to scare them, it is to encourage them. But today, I don't believe this privilege happens very much because, again, we have the completed revealed Word of God. It is in the Scriptures where we are to find our encouragement, not in visions and dreams, not in a desire to look into the spiritual things. We don't need to look into the spiritual realm. Why? Because God has given us His Word and it is through His Word that we can find encouragement. Jesus' own words in Matthew 26, verse 53, that He has more than 12 legions of angels that will come to rescue Him if He calls them to come. How much more God stands ready to command His angelic realm to come and care for us and walk with us. We are 
not physically alone. Because there's a spiritual realm where God is watching and his angels are watching, ready to come to our rescue. What an encouragement. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now the Lord identifies himself. I am the very same God that took care of your grandfather Abraham. I am the very same God of your father Isaac. Remember... All throughout our study so far, Jacob has not interacted with God. Yes, I believe he believes in the living God, Yahweh, but he doesn't have a personal relationship with him. This is his burning bush experience, if you remember uh, the story of Moses. This is when God reveals himself to Jacob. And how he reveals himself is that he reminds Jacob, I'm the same God, the promise-keeping God, who appeared to Abraham, your grandfather, and to your father Isaac. And God goes on to reiterate the unconditional covenant he made with Abraham, given in Genesis 12 and ratified in Genesis 15, that will now pass through Jacob. The very same promise of the land, a promised land. The very same promise of many descendants, of great blessings that will come through his family, and how the world will be blessed through his descendants. God, in these words, is reminding the very lonely Jacob, number two, that he is to remember the promise keeper and his promises. Remember the promise keeper and his promises. We are never alone because God is a promise keeping God. He always remembers his promises. You know, my friends, promises are only words. They're only words. People make promises all the time that they break. The force and the importance and the emphasis of a promise is in the ability of a person who makes it to have it come true, to be able to commit to it and hold on to it. The ability of the person who makes the promise is perhaps more important than the promise itself. Right? If you have a toddler who's five years old and your child loves you, and one day comes up to you, and a little young boy who's a toddler says to mommy and daddy, I will always protect you. I will protect you today. We would all smile and tell that little boy, thank you. You're very sincere. But we know he can't take care of himself. How much more can he take care of us? The one who has made the promise can't fulfill it. So that's why we talk about the attributes of the promise keeper, his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness, his ability to do the impossible, his ability to be everywhere always, his omnipresence, his omniscience, his all-knowingness. And that's why God reveals himself as such, the God of your father Abraham and Isaac, the one who doesn't break promise He's reminding Jacob of his attributes. And then he reminds Jacob of the promises he's made. I've said it many times, God is only responsible 
for what he has promised. Let me ask you, and you know the answer. Has God promised in his word that you will always be monetarily rich? The answer is no. And if some people would propose that the Bible teaches that it is God's will that all of us are rich monetarily, then they are taking that verse out of context. Does the Bible ever promise, as some of you are waiting for your college entrance results, that you will always get into the college of your dreams? The answer is no. Does God promise that you will always have a stable, fulfilling, amazing job where you get along with your colleagues and co-workers? The answer is no. Does God promise in the scripture that you will always be healed from your physical ailments if you only just pray and believe? The answer also is no. And yet here we are often claiming God has abandoned us because we claim that God had made a promise that he's never made. Read the Bible and you will know the promises God makes. He promises to take care of us, to give us a satisfied heart. He promises us that if we have a righteous life, our prayer will avail more. It will be more effective as we grow in faith and trust. So also, our prayers will be more effective. So don't blame God for supposedly not keeping a promise He never made. But our assurance is knowing that all the promises He's ever made have always been kept. And that should be good enough. The promise to provide for us, the promise to protect us, the promise to shelter us. You know, a lot of people ask me, Pastor, does God really keep His promise to protect us when we get into an accident, when we get hurt, when we die in an accident? Where's the promise of God's protection? And I often have to remind them that you're looking from a different perspective. The biblical perspective reminds us that the fact that this sanctuary roof has not collapsed at this moment is God's protective care. You can say, well, the architects and the contractors, they built a sturdy building, and yet there are buildings that fall with earthquakes every day. The fact that you don't have something hit your head and knock you out, a rock, a beam, is a promise of his protection kept. I know that some of you, like myself, likes to watch those YouTube videos of near misses. You've seen those, right? You know, when the beam falls or the car drives off just as that uh, highway collapses. Does it take a near miss in your life for you to recognize that God has been protecting you? You see, in, in God's perspective, there is no near miss and no miss. Does that make sense? It's just a miss. It didn't hit you. It didn't affect you. He has protected you. I, for one, would rather not have any near misses. I would rather have no misses. And then proclaim every day that God protects me, which he does as he has promised. And on that day when he calls me home, 
or on that day when he allows something to happen to me, perhaps, that we would call an accident, I take it as just that, that his sovereign will allowed it, not because he didn't protect, but because he wants to teach me another lesson. Be encouraged, my friends, when you feel alone and lonely and abandoned, there is a promise keeper who has always kept his promises, and his promises are many. Verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I've spoken to you. One of the best promises we hear from God throughout Scripture, here again, is reiterated in verse 15. The promise of His companionship. His words were to remind Jacob, number three, to remember His assurance of companionship. To remember His assurance of companionship. God promised Jacob He would always be with him wherever he went, And if you were to look at his life, God is going to take Jacob on an amazing journey, as we're going to study in the next few weeks, take him to many places around the world. But the promise to Jacob was that wherever the adventures of life would take him, he would eventually bring him back to his homeland, because the Lord will always be by his side. He will be his traveling companion through life's journey. And these four beautiful words, I am with you, is what everyone wants to hear. In fact, it's spoken by the Lord throughout the scriptures, both in the Old and New Testament. When men and women are afraid, that's the one phrase they want to hear. When men and women are alone, feeling that they are at the crossroads of their lives, making a very difficult decision, God often intervenes and he says, I am with you, I am with you, I will always be with you. That's what he says to Joshua as he's about to cross the Jordan into a land unknown to him. That's what he says to the disciples in the New Testament as they go out to spread the gospel, unsure how that gospel would be received. That's the one phrase you want to hear from your friend when you are scared. I'm going to go with you. I'll be with you, right? If your friends are wanting you to go on a scary roller coaster ride, one with lots of loops and goes backwards and whatnot, They can tell you how scary it is, and they can tell you that you shouldn't be afraid because they've ridden it a thousand times, and they survived. So go on it. Don't be scared. And you yourself are scared. You look at that imposing roller coaster, but of course, you've got pride. You don't want to tell them you're scared, and you keep asking about everything because you don't want to be surprised. At the end, what you are looking for, if you're honest with yourself, is you're looking for your friend to tell you, I'll go with you, right? I don't need to hear about you telling me how scary it is, how you've survived it a thousand times. I want you to tell me, I'll hold your hands, and we'll go on this roller coaster together. Those are the most assuring words of one who is scared. I am with you. I will always be with you. You know, when our family goes to the mall, uh, our little daughter, Janelle, often gets very scared walking through some parts of the mall. And it is uh, often through the movie theaters that she doesn't want to walk through. 
And it's very difficult at times because we need to walk through, especially, for example, you're at SM The Block uh, on the fifth floor, and you need, your, your car's parked uh, in the parking garage, and you need to walk through uh, that uh, theater area. And the reason she's afraid and doesn't want to walk through that corridor is because of all the scary movie posters that are there, right? And she gets uh, uh, nightmares, and uh, uh, the Annabelle posters are up, and whatever else are up. And she doesn't want to watch. She doesn't want to see those things. And uh, she'll fight us. Dad, can you park somewhere else? Can we walk the long way? And of course, we try to tell her, don't worry. It's not that scary. But then, uh, oftentimes, one of the boys uh, would come up to her and would say, Janelle, it's okay. I'll walk with you. I'll cover your eyes. And I will lead you through this scary corridor so you don't have to see the poster. And of course, we as parents, we kind of stand back and we're so proud of our boys. Just hoping that Jenna would outgrow this so her husband doesn't have to do this in the future. But as I, I think about them walking through, one behind the other, the other in front, guarding her closing her eyes so she doesn't have to see. I I think that's the very picture of the assurance of companionship that God gives us, that in a way He envelops us, protects us from all sides, and He says, I'm with you. That is the emphasis of what God is saying when He says, I'm always with you. I've got at my resources the angelic realm to come and envelop you as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That's why David writes in his famous psalm, what? I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Hebrew 13.5 is a favorite verse of many. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And those are wonderful words, but if you know Greek, it's even stronger. There's a very unusual triple negative. And if you were to translate the Greek literally, word for word, That verse would read, I will never, never, never leave you nor forsake you. That's the emphasis. Three nevers. I will never, never, never leave you nor forsake you. When Jesus told his disciples that he would have to leave them to ascend back to heaven, they were nervous, they were scared. Jesus assured his disciples when he leaves, he would send someone, and he used quotes, quote-unquote, better. It is in that sense that when God sends the parakletos, the helper, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will not leave. John 14, 16, and I pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. He resides in the heart of each person who places their trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's why you and I need to understand theology in the Bible, to understand the work of the Holy Spirit, to understand His indwelling work, the sealing work of the Holy Spirit at the moment of of salvation, which identifies us as the property of the Heavenly Father, and He will never leave us as His prized possession because the Holy Spirit lives in our hearts. 
God wanted Jacob to remember his assurance of companionship, just like today God wants us to be reminded that if we place our trust in Jesus, he is always with us because God the Holy Spirit resides in us. Look at verse 16 and 17 at Jacob's epiphany. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How amazing is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Jacob awakes from his God-given dream vision. It's still dark, and he comes to aha moment. If you were to draw this, you would draw Jacob with a light bulb on top of his head. Aha, I got it. He realizes a truth that transforms. And here it is, if you're writing this down, a truth that transforms his life. God has been present all along. God has been present all along. He's always been here. He's been here all the time. I I just didn't know it. I want to ask you a question. When he wakes up from this vision dream, did his situation suddenly change? Did it? Did he suddenly wake up and there were six angelic soldiers that would serve as his bodyguard that appeared? No. When he woke up, did he suddenly get transported to the safety of his uncle Laban's house? Nope. The only situation or the only thing that changed was his mind. An assurance now that the Lord is with him and in this place. In verse 17, when he says that he is afraid, it's not unafraid of being fearful, but in a reverent sense. And I love his proclamation, how awesome is this place? How awesome? Because wherever the Lord is, it is an awesome place. So if you ever feel down and discouraged and alone and abandoned, remember that the Lord is here. The Lord is with you. He's always been with you. This truth will transform your life. You see, I've met many people who have struggled with loneliness, feelings of abandonment, and some of them are very bitter. They're angry. Feelings of loneliness and abandonment, if undealt with, without this perspective, will lead to a very bitter person. They're angry at God. They're angry at their parents. We see this often in the case of divorce, separation. Why did my dad abandon me? Why did my mother abandon me? We see this in cases where spouses have a mistress. And that deep trust has been broken. We see this in the case where best friends at one point have stabbed each other in the back perhaps. Or one has done something to the other. And the friendship is broken and people become very bitter. And then there are others who go through abandonment and loneliness and they come out with joy. They're able to break out of a depressed state, a self-pity, because they come to a truth that transforms. Even though all has left, 
They've all run out. God has been present all along. He has been there. He's been there. You will see this in the life of Jacob. This is the turning point in his life. He could have lived a very bitter life. But you will see that this realization transforms it. I don't know if you're familiar uh, with a poem uh, called Footprints. I know this generation doesn't like poems too much. Uh, but of uh, people in my generation, uh, you may be familiar with it. Uh, and if you are a millennial or Gen Y and Gen Z, go Google it. It's, it's worth the read. But it is a beautiful poem that speaks of a man talking with the Lord. And he's assessing his life and he's looking back and he sees that as his life's journey has been represented through footprints on a beach, that there, there have always been two sets of footprints. And yet, as he looks at his life in the most difficult, darkest moments of his life, he realizes that there was only one set of footprints. And he asked the Lord, Lord, why is it that in the most difficult times of my life, there's only one set of footprints? Where were you? Why did you leave me? And our Lord reminds the one asking, my child, it wasn't that I'd left you. That one set of footprint is because I carried you through those difficult times. And now you begin to see how people who are lonely can either look through the lenses of bitterness or they can look through the lenses of truth that God has been present all along carrying them through the most difficult of times. This is the first time we read in Scripture that Jacob and God interact past few weeks, a lot of deception, a lot of scheming. And from this life-changing encounter, his burning bush experience, Jacob responds in three ways. Let's take a look. Verse, six, verse 19, excuse me, verse 18 and 19. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city had been loosed previously. Apparently, Jacob went back to sleep and probably had the most amazing sleep that one could ever have. And he woke up when the sun came up, and with this truth that has transformed his life, he set up a pillar of stone to serve as a memorial for what just happened. He calls that place Bethel. We will come back to this a few weeks from now, which literally means house of God. El meaning God, house of God. But what you see here is Jacob's first response. Number one, a response of a memorial, a response of a remembrance. Jacob wanted to commemorate that there was a time when he felt very alone and lonely, and God revealed to him that he was his constant companion. He'd always been there. And so he built a, a memorial, a, a remembrance pillar. Why does he do this? 
Why is it good for us to respond like this? Because we as humans often forget. We have very short-term memories. So that's why we have to write things down. We should journal our spiritual journey. The very act of putting together a memorial or writing it down locks a truth, a life experience into our memory. So the next time when you're going through a time of trouble, you can say, well, hang on there. God really hasn't left me. Look at all of these times where God has been with me. You know, Facebook is good at that. Every so often you see in the news feed a picture from a few years ago. Oh, I had forgotten about that, you say to yourself. Let me repost it. Right? Sometimes it was something that happened last year. We can't even remember what happened last year. Did that really happen? And what does it do when those memories come up? It brings up the same feeling, the same emotions, the same joys or the same sadness of that event. You know, there's a reason why some of you have asked, Pastor, why don't you put your outline points on a slide? It would make our life really easy. I can. It would be easy. But I, would, I don't want to make your life too easy because I know what you'll do. I'll flash up the outline. You'll take a picture of it. And then you'll begin to daydream. Or you'll take a picture of it and you'll never review that picture again. I know I've done the same thing. Or you just stare at that screen. And the reason we want you to write things down is so that in the process of writing, we call that pedagogy, the science of teaching, that it will be locked into your brain. And I know for some of you, as you're taking notes, for those of you who do, you'll never look at your notes again. I know that. But it is the hopes that as you write it down, that act, that act of memorializing something, pen to paper, will lock into your brain. That's the idea. Because in this world of immediacy, we have a tendency very often to forget that we are not alone. And so we bemoan and complain, Lord, you've abandoned us again. Memorialize it somehow. You can think of your own ways. And as you map out your life journey, it will be a constant reminder that will strengthen your faith. I have a life map. Whenever I I get discouraged and wonder why God allows certain things in my life, I will review my life map. And I'll look at those times when I felt very down, where God helped me through the process. I need to be reminded of those things. The second response, verse 20 to 21. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I... Come back to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. We look at this verses and we say, oh, wow, Jacob, you seem like you're bargaining with God. We've always known and assumed that Jacob believed in Yahweh, but he had not totally submitted his life to God. But it seems that he's bargaining. If, Lord, you bring me back to this place, this homeland of mine, then I will fully submit to your lordship in my life. 
But lest we're too hard on Jacob, we do the same thing. We should not forget that our process of spiritual maturity is a journey. As we know more of the Lord, we should be trusting in Him more. And so, his response, number two, is a response of inner conviction. Lord, I just met you. I don't know you really well. But if you show yourself faithful in this journey of mine, I'm going to believe you. There's a response of inner conviction. If you prove to be faithful and bring me back, I will submit to you. And that's what we all do in life. That's called the spiritual maturity process, the process of discipleship, that we convict in our hearts that as God shows himself faithful in those times of our troubles, that we will increase in our faith. I hope that is your inner conviction. Because we trust people when they prove themselves, right? If there's a new teacher, there's a new pastor, do you just trust them? Of course not. They've got to prove themselves to you. We do the same thing with technology. Do you guys remember? Well, I bet if I were to ask you this morning, how many of you used Waze this week? 95% of you, those with cars, would raise their hands. All right? Even if you're using Grab or a shared ride, you probably use Waze also to make sure that your driver isn't taking you on a sightseeing journey. We all trust Waze. You know, we actually trust Waze so much that I will get notices from people if they're running late to meetings with me. Waze says, I'll be there in 20 minutes. I'll see you in 20 minutes. That's how much we trust Waze. You remember nine years ago when Waze was made available here in the Philippines? There was a lot of skepticism. Who uses Waze? I'd used it in the early days. Very frustrating when Waze takes you to some random subdivision, thinking it's a shortcut, but you need a sticker to get in. Or Waze takes you on these little roads, not realizing that the informal settlers had built their house in the middle of the road. Or Waze takes you through floodwaters. But as the technology has improved, as you have become more reliant on it, you cannot even drive a short distance if you admit it without ways, right? In fact, you trust it so much, you'll even tell your driver who's been driving you for 30 years, you need to use ways. That's how it is. As it shows itself to be a technology of trustworthiness, we put more faith into it. How about with our Lord? If you say you journey with Him, and in every moment of every day as you encounter loneliness and He comes and He is showing Himself to be your companion, should that not increase your faith in Him? That was the response of Jacob. That was his conviction. I hope that's yours as well. Or else you're going to start over in your spiritual life every time you come to a difficult place. And you start from square one again. God, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? 
God is always with us as we build our lives of faith. Those words, I am with you, will grow in its meaning, will grow in its impact, will grow in its power to affect your life. There's a wonderful prayer by Patrick of Ireland, and it goes something like this. I establish myself today, I steady myself, I I establish myself today in the power of God to guide me, the might of God to uphold me, the wisdom of God to teach me, the eye of God to watch over me, the ear of God to hear me, the word of God to speak for me, the hand of God to protect me, the way of God to lie before me, the shield of God to shelter me, the host of God to defend me. Then he continues, why? Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ at my right, Christ at my left, Christ in breadth, Christ in length, Christ in height, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks to me, Christ in the eye of every man who sees me, Christ in the ear of every man who hears me. These words are one of a missionary. They call him St. Patrick today. Who headed into Ireland to bring the gospel of Jesus to a bunch of pagans, druids, heathens. He went by himself. He was very much alone. And yet he wasn't. Because he assured himself Christ was all around him, protecting him from within and without. Death was very much a reality as he went into Ireland. But with the confidence that comes from the Lord's assurance, I will be with you, he evangelized all of Ireland. When one responds with an inner conviction to grow in faith, as God reveals Himself every day of every month of every year. You will grow in your faith, and those words, I am with you, will grow in its significance for your life. Finally, verse 22. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Here is the third response of Jacob upon the realization that God is his companion in his time of loneliness. Number three, he responds with a tangible action. A response in tangible action. He says that this realization of God's companionship and presence in his life deserves an action. And he does so through giving. He says, I will give a tenth back to what is God's. Now, listen carefully. The stress is on the giving. The stress is not on the percentage. Some of you will say, oh, there it is. The Bible teaches 10%. We live in the New Testament. We have the freedom to give whatever percentage we want to the Lord. 3%, 5%, 8%, 20%. As long as it is cheerfully given. The stress is not on the percentage. The stress is on the action of his desire to give. Why would he do something like this? Well, let me give you an example. Let's say that you were in an accident and you are confined to a wheelchair. 
and you need someone to push you around, but you have a very important business meeting in Japan. You just have to go. And so you ask all of your friends, can one of you accompany me? I need your help. I need you to push me around. I need you to do some basic uh, uh, things for me. And one of your friends offers. He gets nothing out of it. He does it not out of obligation, but he's just your friend. He doesn't have to do it. And so you're happy that you have a companion to help you as you go to Japan for your business trip. Now, let's say he helps you, you know, he pushes you around the airport, helps you through uh, the check-in and check-out, a check-in process of the hotel, and it comes to mealtime. What's the most natural thing you'll do? Would any of you ever say, well, you know, friend, thank you. I'm going to eat now by myself. You can go eat by yourself. And use your own money, by the way. I only have budget for one, me. If ever that happened, we'd all shake our heads and say, so unappreciative. The most natural response, which is often the Asian way, is we recognize that he has come to help us, and we would say, would you join me for dinner? Can I buy your dinner? We'd probably even go to the extent of paying for their lodging. It's a natural response for one who is helping you as he accompanies you. Now, I think you know where I'm going with this. Our God has proclaimed that He is our companion to help us in our time of need. Why is it that we so struggle to give Him our time, to give Him our resources, to give Him our talents in response? Literally, we're telling God, thanks for helping me. Go eat by yourself. Go find your own lodging. Just come when I call you, I'll ring a bell. Now you begin to understand why the natural response so appreciative is Jacob that he is moved to action. The law has not been given. He doesn't have to give a tenth. And yet out of the expression of his heart, the life-transforming truth, he gives back to God. I hope you will respond in a tangible way for the truth of knowing that He walks with us. How you respond is between you and God, but I hope you will respond. I end with this story. It's told by James Dobson, the story of an elderly woman named Stella who was struggling with her first Christmas alone. Her husband had died just a few months prior. There was slow developing cancer. Now, several days before Christmas, she felt terribly alone, so much that she decided she wasn't even going to decorate for Christmas. She had no children, no grandchildren. Late that afternoon, the doorbell rang, and there was a delivery boy with a box. He said, Ma'am Stella? She said, yes, this is she. He said, this is for you. She asked the delivery boy, what's in the box? The young man smiled and opened up the flap, and inside was a little puppy, a golden Labrador retriever. The delivery boy picked up the squirming pup and 
explain. This is for you, ma'am. He's six weeks old, completely housebroken. The young puppy began to wiggle in happiness at being released from captivity. Stella asked, who sent this young man? The young man set the animal down and handed her an envelope and said, it's all explained here in the envelope, ma'am. The dog was bought last July while its mother was still pregnant. It was meant to be a Christmas gift to you. The young man then handed her a book, How to Care for Your Labrador Retriever. In desperation, she asked again, Who sent me this puppy? As the young man turned to leave, he said, Your husband, ma'am. Merry Christmas. She opened up the letter from her husband. He had written it three weeks before he died and left it with the kennel owner to be delivered with the puppy as his last Christmas gift to her. The letter was full of love. It was encouraging. It was admonishing her to be strong. And he vowed that he was waiting for the day when she would join him. And in the meantime, he had sent her this young animal to keep her company until then when they would meet. She read the letter once and then twice and then a third time and she wiped away the tears and put the letter down and then remembered the puppy at her feet. She picked up that golden furry ball and held it to her neck and somehow her senses were sharpened and she heard from the radio in the kitchen the strains of that wonderful Christmas carol, Joy to the World, the Lord has come. Suddenly, Stella felt the most amazing sensation of peace washing over her. Her loneliness seemed to melt away. Her heart felt a joy and a wonder greater than her grief and loneliness. It was the joy of a companion. Joy to the world, indeed. The Lord has come. Until that day we see our Heavenly Father face to face. God didn't want us to walk this earth alone. He sent His Son. He sent His Son to die for us so that He would be able to live in our hearts, to accompany us. So I don't know where you are in this moment of life. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know. Issues of abandonment or, or being stabbed in the back, I don't know. But I know that there are times in all of our lives we feel lonely. But it is in those times that if our sights are set on Jesus, then we are reminded that we are never alone. Never, never, never alone. And so we can pick up our grief and our loneliness, and we can turn them into joy, into assurance that there is one who is always with us, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It is encouraging even to me. For those that do feel alone, they are disappointed, they are discouraged, I pray. The truth that transforms lives, the truth that transformed Jacob's life will be the same truth that transforms our life. 
that you've always been with us, that you carry us through the darkest of times, that you never leave us nor forsake us. And for that, we are assured and our hearts are filled once again with encouragement from above and with joy. In Jesus' name we pray.